you will turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, I want to read a few verses there, and this is the passage from which we'll uh, find our lesson this morning. The writer of Hebrews says, But recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle, both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains, and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has reward. I want to make a couple of observations at the beginning of the lesson, and we'll try to connect them to this particular passage as we go along. Is it possible that the Lord's Church in this country, in America, is suffering the long-term effects of its own success? Is it possible that the dominance and prosperity in American history of what we might refer to as the Christian ethic has really grown to be an obstacle to the Lord's cause, and certainly maybe to us personally to serve in Christ. Let me explain to you what I mean by those questions, because I think the answer, my answer to both those questions is yes, it is possible and maybe absolutely true. For the most part of our history as Americans, the Bible as the Word of God, God's existence, and living by the principles of the Bible has been a well-accepted thing. And what we recognize is that, for the most part, to be a Christian in America over the past generations has been a good thing. It has been a better thing in the sense that being a Christian has been accepted as normal. That living by the things the Bible presents has been considered to be beneficial. And even in some regards, the principles of the Bible are considered to be patriotic tenets and that those who serve Christ or look to the Bible for direction are considered to be patriotic. Being a Christian then, for the most part, at least as I remember and maybe as we can remember from American history, generally has resulted in things going well. That even material prosperity is the result of following the principles of the scriptures and maybe attempting to follow Christ. And so being a Christian made things better. And that's certainly a blessing from God. We think about our freedoms that were just mentioned in the prayer and the remarks about concerning our giving. We need to always consider that what God has provided for this country has been a great blessing and forever allow that to be a source of our thanks, true thanksgiving, even in the context of things that are changing. Now, there's some reasonables to the conclusion that being a Christian makes things better, not just from the standpoint of its cultural acceptance in the world in which we, have, we find ourselves in America, But if you respect God's laws on moral sexuality, it's very unlikely that you'll get AIDS or some other STD, that you'll be protected from disease. If you avoid alcohol, you avoid the devastation of alcoholism and the addiction that's attached with that. If you respect marriage and you stay true to your mate, even statistics tell us that you'll be happier, more contented, you'll live longer in life. And if we respect the Word of God and respect other people, We treat people with kindness. If we work hard and we develop a Christian ethic on work, then we'll probably be honored by others. At least we'll be more successful than others that do not do that. And so life will be, in many regards, better in our society. And it's been that way. But as my questions reflected, I believe that there is a sense in which this acceptance and prosperity may have created an, an unbiblical mindset among God's people. We assume, we assume that things should go well because things have gone well. 
We come to expect that things will go well as we serve Christ. And we begin to feel at home in this world. We begin to feel that this is the place God wants us to be. And this is the place that God has placed us. And that this is what it means to serve Christ in all regards. In such a mindset then, where Christianity and living the Christian life is accepted culturally, that it produces material prosperity for the most part, where it's always seen as a good thing, then sometimes within that mindset is the idea that if the worst thing that could happen to us as Christians is if we lost what we had, that poverty and sickness and the loss of society's approval would become the worst thing that could happen to us. And so when that does take place, or when we sense it is taking place, we become very afraid. We become challenged to a great extent. And maybe sometimes we become despondent And the sense in which we have this approach to Christianity, that it is in our own experience connected to things that are good physically, then sometimes even the appeal of the gospel is changed in our minds. Our appeal to others on the basis of the gospel message is that Jesus will make your life better here, that if you'll serve Christ, things will go well. And then people sometimes may, you see, be willing to go along with that, or at least they'll accept that appeal, and then things don't go well. And they become, you see, discouraged and fall away, thinking, well, that's not what I thought it would be. That's not what I intended it, uh, that that, that I expected it to be. One author stated that the call of the gospel in modern America is a call not to suffer as an alien, but a call to to prosper as a citizen. And I think there are some implications to where that's true. But what I want to talk about this morning is how does that mindset, if that's what has developed, if there is evidence of that among us in America today, how does that mindset correspond to the first century Christian? How does our present reality match up to the Christian worldview of those who served Christ in the beginning? What he says here in Hebrews chapter 10 as he speaks to those who are Christians, he says, recall the former days. The apostolic writer is calling on Christians to remember the days before. He says, do you remember in the days earlier when you were illuminated? The term illuminated there is sometimes translated enlightened. And it doesn't take, I think, much study to recognize that what he's talking about here is their conversion. That he's getting them to remember back when they became Christians. Points them back to the time that they were enlightened about the gospel. They came to know the truth. They came to know Jesus. They came to recognize that they needed forgiveness of their sins, and they became Christians. And so the light of the gospel message shined upon them. They were enlightened. And so he says, do you remember when you were illuminated in the former days that you struggled? The text, I think, here reaffirms the facts and reinforces the facts of the early chapters of the book of Acts. When the gospel first began to be preached in the world, But the persecution of the early Christians in Judea was a true reality. In Acts chapter 3 and 4, the apostles were imprisoned. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen was stoned. There was the harassment of Saul of Tarsus in Acts chapter 8, going around putting Christians in prison and even putting them to death. And then in Acts chapter 12, James was executed by the local government of Judea because he was a Christian and because he taught the truth. Now, it tells us later in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4, that those to whom the writer of Hebrews is speaking to did not resist unto bloodshed. 
It would seem to suggest to us that whoever we see being the recipients of the first recipients of the book of Hebrews, that they had not yet gotten to the point where they had actually shed physical blood for the cause of Christ. But what the writer of Hebrews says is you can remember what it was like when you first became a Christian, can't you? You can recall the former days. He says when there was a great struggle with sufferings. The original word struggle there depicts a fight. It's a word that describes a conflict when you exchange fisticuffs with another person or you engage in a physical battle with someone. Now, he's not talking about a physical battle when he uses the word here, but he is talking about a spiritual struggle. And so he says, as soon as you became Christians, as soon as the light came on and you started serving Christ, what happened then? You suffered. In fact, this suffering was not easy. It was a struggle, a fight as you suffered. And the apostle mentions two elements of this early struggle of the Christians. One directly, in the sense that they were made a spectacle by reproaches and tribulations. The word for spectacle here is from the same word from which we get the English word theater. And you know, you go to theater to see people, you see, put on display to see people act out a story. The Greeks were big on the theater, and so were the Romans. Paul may, right of Hebrews, may very well use that word here because of its association with this aspect of the physical theater putting on display. What we do know is that it was common for the Greeks and the Romans to lead criminals, those who'd been accused and convicted of crimes, to lead them through the city so that other people could look at them so they could become a spectacle before their execution. And they would be then subject to the insults and the reproaches, all of the jeering of the crowd because they were convicted as criminals. Now, there's no direct evidence that these Christians here had actually been subject to that type of treatment. But what the apostle is saying is that you remember that when you became Christians, you became subject to reproaches and to insults. (coughs) That these insults and this jeering and this making fun of and this ridiculing was on the public level that you became, you see, placed in the theater for others to see, made a spectacle for others because, you see, you were Christians. <coughs> One translation says, sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions. That ever happened to you? You ever been made a public spectacle by the taunts and the ridicules because of your faith? And if not yourself, have you ever known another Christian who was treated that way? Someone who was absolutely made fun of and ridiculed because they stood up for what was right, because they lived out their faith. Well, not only had they done this themselves, been experienced this themselves, but indirectly they also had become companions of those who had so treated. So he may be talking to a group of folks, and some of them had gone through this personal ridicule and this personal persecution. But others had not necessarily experienced this themselves, but they knew people that had And they became companions of those who had been so treated. One translation said that other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. And what it suggests is that these Christians that the writer is talking to had been willing to join themselves to the persecuted and the reviled ones. That they had a choice. They weren't being persecuted personally themselves, but the people of their congregation or the Christians in the area were being made fun of. And they had a choice. They could turn away from that. They could back away from that. But they chose to join themselves with that group of reviled people. To become a part of that. To be a companion to those who were persecuted. 
So rather than back off and stand aloof, they got involved, knowing what was going to happen. To physically stand up with those who were being ridiculed may very well have involved the aspect of visiting them in jail, going to mention the aspect of prison, taking food to them, providing things that had been taken away from them, providing them sustenance when it had been, you see, denied them. So there was this companionship, this fellowship, this solidarity, this unity among those, you see, who had been pers- who were being persecuted. He goes on to say, For you had compassion on me and my chains, the New King James Version says. And the New King James and the King James Version translates for this phrase as a personal reference to the writer of Hebrews, which many assume to be Paul, that he was in prison and therefore they had compassion on him when he was in prison. The other translations, I think probably the more accurate translations, give a more personal description because the term for you is not in the original. And they say that what really is being said is therefore you sympathize with the prisoners. You sympathize with the prisoners. Now this points to not only what they did, but I believe why they did it. In two facets. One is they saw people suffer unjustly for the cause of righteousness and they felt empathy for them. The word compassion here means to share in a feeling with someone who is suffering or who is going through a difficult time. To be touched by the feeling of another's pain. So they looked at other people suffering and they said, I I feel for those people, I'm going to reach out to them, I'm going to join myself to them. The other idea is that they sympathized with them in who they were. That they saw people suffering for the cause of righteousness and serving Christ. And they were also people that wanted to do right and serve Christ. And so they shared in the same convictions. They shared in the same perspective of life, from the same worldview. They were like these people who were suffering. And therefore they suffered with those who were in prison because they were like those who were in prison, even though they themselves were not. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 16, the Apostle Paul late in his life talked about a fellow companion named Onesiphorus. And he says, The Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and he found me. So here's Paul in prison. And when this Onesiphorus comes to town, he looks him up. And when he finds out he's in prison, he doesn't stay away. He goes to him and zealously seeks him out. And it's not like it was that it is to be in prison today in modern society where you're fed three meals and you're given a, you're given a place, your, your needs are taken care of. And in prison in Rome and in prison in those societies, if your friends and relatives and the people you knew didn't bring you any food, you didn't get much. That you were taken care of by people on the outside. So to go and refresh Paul when he's in prison was not only to associate with him, but to provide for his needs, to join him as his companion. Now, Christians did that, didn't they? They remember the words of teaching. I was in uh, teachings of Jesus. I was in prison and you came to me. And as much as you did it to one of the least of these brethren, you've done it unto me. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 3 later on says, Remember those in prison as though in prison with them. Now, I would suggest to you that that is not just something to be culturally associated with the past. We may not think of Christians being in prison much, and maybe most of the Christians we do know, or merely all the Christians that we know, are not in prison. But understanding that the world that we live in is changing, and the mindset towards Christian suffering must necessarily accommodate to that, is it possible that there's coming a time when the Christians that we know and the Christians that we are like and the Christians that we have been with before are not free, but rather are in prison, or suffering great persecution, and we will have a choice 
Will we suffer with them? Will we associate with them? Or will we back off? What Paul says here is that these folks chose to associate and to be companions with those who were in prison. Well, what did it cost them? That's a big part of what he says here. The apostle wants them to remember that they chose to do this in the past and they suffered a great struggle, but there was a price that was already been paid by them to be a follower of Jesus. He reminds them that they had joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods. Verse 34. When they chose to expose themselves, when they chose to be sympathizers and companions, when they chose to be ridiculed and stay with Christ even though they were being ridiculed for their faith, they lost what they had. The text literally means that they, their property was confiscated. Now we may not be absolutely sure how all that happened, but I think certainly we can, we can make some suppositions that would be pretty accurate. That is, when an individual was accused of a crime and then convicted of a crime, when he was disassociated because of his, because of his relationship to those who were criminals, the government found it very rightful for them to take away property. If you're giving your goods to support this cause and this cause is illegal, then we need to take away your goods so that you can't supply these individuals. In much the same way we would think that a fellow who's sending money to terrorists, we should be able to, you see, confiscate his money and take his bank account away from him because he's supporting that which is wrong. And if Christianity is illegal, if serving Christ is wrong, then those who stand by that position and give to that can have their property confiscated. And that's what was happening, you see, in this respect. The word translated plundering, sometimes translated spoil, depicts the forceful taking of another's property. Someone coming in and taking what belongs to you. How do you feel about that? As an American, as a person of a free society, as individuals who mostly believe in the rights of personal property, that someone could come in and just take your stuff! Why? Because I believe this? Because I have convictions about this? Because I stand up for what I've been taught? Because I believe this is right? Because I live a certain way? Someone can come and just take my stuff? To the victor gets the spoils. Being a Christian in the first century did not mean that things would go well. It didn't mean that you would be culturally accepted. It did not mean that you would materially prosper. What it means is that someone could come in and take all your stuff. What would that look like today? That's the first century. That's when Christianity was illegal. That's when, you see, there was persecution. And people even gave their lives for the cause of Christ. We may find it difficult to make personal application to this in our own lives. I know I do because no one's ever come and taken my property because I serve Christ. But there are some applications. And I would suggest to you there are many in our world that can relate precisely to what these first century Christians went through those who risk everything that they have even their own lives to take the gospel message to places where it is not only not dominant where it is illegal to believe in Christ and where all the principles of Christ are opposed on every level in society where if you take the gospel message and you preach it in its fullness someone can take your life North Korea Pakistan Somalia Afghanistan, Sudan, Syria, Iraq, Iran, Yemen, Nigeria, Libya, China. All those places exist in our world. In all of those places, to be a Christian is to risk your life. To preach the gospel message 
is to mean that someone can come and take your property and take your stuff and change your life forever. Those people can relate. Those who accept God's definition of marriage, even in this country, as the joining of a man and a woman, and whose faith in God and the Word of God will not allow them to expand that definition to accommodate culture or to go along with what society believes is okay, even the Supreme Court. What if one believes with all their heart what 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 10 says, that those who are idolaters and adulterers and homosexuals will not have their part in the kingdom of God unless they repent? And we truly believe that without repentance and same-sex relationships of, that a person will not enter the kingdom of heaven, can the Christian then celebrate what will keep someone out of the kingdom? Can a Christian accommodate to society? Or will he have a choice? Those who choose not to celebrate same-sex marriage. What will happen to those folks? It's happening, isn't it? They're plundered. They're plundered. It costs you your business, your job, your bakery, your photography business, your catering business. It costs you the love and sanctity. The love of marriage will cost you even the relationship you may have with your family and those friends around you because there is a cost to serving God even in a free society and one you see that in the past has prospered and things have gone well. Those who stand up today for their God-given roles in the home and in the church, a man and a woman in a relationship respecting their roles of submission and leadership will be ridiculed and they will be reproached. Those who stood up and have continued to stand up for the sanctity of the life of the unborn child and to oppose the murder of children in the womb will be ridiculed. And some have already been plundered. They've lost their jobs and their reputations because they stand up for what the scriptures say. Those who oppose racism and ethnic oppression wherever it is found and do it in places where it is culturally promoted because Christ tells them this is what is right will be ridiculed and reproached. And they will be plundered. It seems clear to me that we as Americans are moving closer and closer to the solidarity that we need to have in some respects to the Christians in Hebrew chapter 10. There are more and more opportunities for us to suffer reproach. More and more opportunities for us to be ridiculed. And more and more opportunities for us to be plundered of the things that we have. And that's a bad thing from the standpoint of the physical element of it. But the real question I think that this text would point us to is how we react to that if that becomes our reality. If that's what it really means in our society to serve Christ is what it meant for them to serve Christ in their society. What choices will we make? Well, how do they react to the plunder? Well, the text says they joyfully accepted the plundering of their goods. They joyfully accepted the plundering. You know, it's one thing to suffer for doing what is right unjustly. You didn't deserve it. It shouldn't come your way, but you suffer. It's another thing to suffer unjustly without resistance. Does not stand up and fight for your rights. To be submissive to the government or whoever it might be and to suffer without resistance. And yet it's another thing to suffer joyfully for righteousness. To suffer in the context of seeing it as a part of living the Christian life and in it there is value that brings joy to my life. 
Jesus predicted righteous suffering as a characteristic of a joyful and blessed life in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when, you, when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets that were before you. Jesus says there's joy to be found in suffering and suffering unjustly and being persecuted. Because one, you see, God has something in store for you that's greater than this and the other you have to recognize is you're not the first one to do this. The prophets before you have suffered. The Christians of the early church caught on to this not only through the experience of suffering personally in their own lives but because they recognized the value of what Jesus was teaching about persecution. And so they regarded righteous suffering as a privilege because it connected them with their Savior. 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter speaks about this, for this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, it's commendable before God. That recognizing that you're doing what is right and then suffering for it is commendable because you see it connects you with Jesus. Paul said, in Colossians chapter 1, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. Paul would be so bold to say that his, his physical suffering was so connected with Jesus that it filled up or made complete the sufferings of Jesus. Now, he wasn't saying there was something lacking in Jesus' suffering. But he so wanted them to understand that what I'm doing is what Jesus was doing. That this is the same course. This is the same path. This is exactly what makes me who I am. In the passage that we studied last week, Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, Paul said he willingly forsook everything that seemed valuable in his life. He counted up his loss that he might share in the sufferings of Christ, being conformed even to his death. We noticed in that text that Paul was... Certainly, taking it to another level. Not only was he willing to suffer, but I'll die just like Jesus died. In fact, I want to die just like Jesus died for the cause of right. To suffer and to rejoice in it because it makes you more like Jesus. Is that the American way? Is that the way we serve Christ or even think about serving Christ in our country? Romans chapter 5, Paul says... We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our suffering because we know that suffering produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom He has given us. I have you noticed in this passage that Paul says the Christian rejoices in two things. He says we rejoice in our hope and we rejoice in our suffering. This is precisely the connection the writer of Hebrews makes in the passage we've discussed earlier in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 34, that we suffer and rejoice in it or we joyfully accept the plundering of our goods because we know something about what is to come. How could these Christians possibly accept the plundering of their goods and joyfully accept the plundering of their goods? How could they do it? Well, let me suggest a couple of things and then we'll look at the text more precisely. But I believe the only way possible for you and I or any individuals to joyfully accept the plundering of our goods, to be willing to accept with rejoicing the taking away of our personal things, is we are become detached from possession of the popularity of our own age. The only way this is possible is if we're able to remove ourselves 
from the way the world thinks about itself and the way the world thinks about its stuff, if we're going to be prepared for the plundering that has come, then we're going to deal with the bigger issues of covetousness and greed and materialism that's within us. As long as those things reside in our hearts, if the plundering does come, we'll not be able to accept it joyfully. We'll resist it in every regard and it may very well cause us to lose our faith in God when that comes. The only way we can prepare for those times is to be individuals that are conscious of the absolute valuelessness of the things that are around us. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, Do not lay up for yourself treasures on earth and where moth and rust and where destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That Jesus' words not only look to the aspect of how I feel about my things when I have them, that I cherish them, but also reflect the aspect of how I'll feel about my things when they're gone, when they're plundered. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If I put my treasure in the things of this earth, then Satan has a real tool and advantage when he can bring about the situation where those things are taken away from me. And now I have to reevaluate my relationship to God and maybe redefine what it means to serve God in my society because no longer is it prosperous and dominant and acceptable, but rather it is the very source of my trouble. We cannot break our attachment to this world without nurturing and developing, I believe, a satisfying hope in the world to come. If this world is not it, then what is it? He says, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession. This is how they did it. They were willing to joyfully accept the plundering of their goods because they understood there was something that was better to come, an enduring possession. I would suggest to you that's what may be the very thing that distinguishes us from them may very well take the Lord's Supper the same way and meet at the same time and say the same prayers and study the same book. But when I look at someone who is willing to joyfully take the plundering of their physical goods for the cause of Christ and compare it to myself, I recognize there is a contrast there. There is a chasm to be filled. And where did, wherein does that lie? It might be here that to these early Christians, heaven was an absolute reality. It wasn't a pie in the sky by and by. Well, I hope they get there and maybe there's a better place. To these early Christians, heaven was the substance. And the verb, the, the term substance is actually used in some translations here. That they saw this as an enduring substance. What? Something that I haven't had yet? Something that's yet in the future that I cannot see with my eyes? That's exactly right. They were able to give up the physical things because they understood the reality and the absolute authenticity of spiritual things. They knew that heaven was an abiding possession. Everything else could be confiscated. Everything else could be taken away. But for the faithful Christian, the hope of heaven and heaven itself was a possession that no one could plunder. No government can confiscate it. No one can take it out from us. It is ours. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation. You can take it all here. Everything that I have. Plunder. And I can have joy because I have something you can never take away. It is an enduring possession. It is a better possession. 
To live the Christian life does mean things will be better, doesn't it? It really does mean that to live the Christian life is a better thing, but not because we prosper in our society, because culture accepts us, or because we get along with everybody around us, but because we have Jesus, and He is the one for whom we will count everything at loss. We have Christ. We can rejoice in the sufferings when we learn to rejoice in our hope. It'll change our perspective on things that are bad in this world when we come to realize the good that's in the world that's come. When we cherish the reward of heaven more than we cherish the earth, then we'll be willing to give up the earth to inherit the kingdom of God. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 1. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above and not on the things of this earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is our life appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. It says that you died and your life is hidden with Christ. Can you think about the perspective of the Christian who stood in the Roman arena being threatened with his life if you don't renounce your Jesus as your Savior, we're going to cut off your head, we're going to kill you, and the mind of that person saying, that's okay, I've already died. And my life is hidden with Christ. You can't touch it there. You can't, with a sword, take it away. It's mine. The Apostle's attention in our text, you see, is to encourage Christians not to go back. That's what he's saying to them. Don't go back. Hold the confidence into the end. He says here, don't cast away your confidence, which has great reward. Think about what you served God for in the beginning. Think about what you suffered for in the beginning. You did all of this, not because of what you could have here physically, but what you could gain spiritually. And don't give that up because you will receive the promise. And that's encouragement for us too. I wish that this message of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 32 through 36 was not so applicable to our society. But it is. I wish we didn't have to think about and contemplate the aspect of persecution and ridicule and reproach and the plundering of our goods. But there it is. And it's not some anomaly that you and I would suffer. Don't think it's strange that they would think that you're funny because you don't run to riot with them or because you suffer. Those who live godly, Paul said, will suffer persecution. God will sift out his kingdom from among the kingdoms of men by the presence of suffering. What is your life? You know, Paul described his life in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, his ministry this way. He says he was sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. He was poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. That's powerful, isn't it? What's your life? Well, I got nothing, but I got everything. Well, I'm constantly crying, but I'm so happy. How can that be possible? That we could be so poor and yet have such great riches. Because Jesus is our King and this world is not our home. Thank you for your attention this morning. If you're not a Christian, we want you to join the ranks of those who are despised and rejected and reproached. Become a companion with those who suffer because to suffer for righteousness is the call of the Christian and the hallmark of those who follow Jesus. Submit yourself to the will of God. Repent of your sins and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. Can we help you do that? While we stand here, while we sing.